Hello, and welcome to Technology and Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Jacqueline Feek, author of Ptolemy's Philosophy, Mathematics as a Way of Life, published by Princeton University Press, October 16, 2018. Yeah, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk about my book. So, and I'll say since, you know, this uh, technology and space podcast and the reason I wanted to talk about Ptolemy is the importance of his philosophy and mathematics to um, the exploration of space. You know, as he, obviously, you know, it's used in, in many different ways in that study. So first, how did, um, how did you get into studying and writing on, on Ptolemy and his philosophy? Right. So, um, I actually became interested in the general topic of the history of science back when I was an undergraduate student. Mm -hmm. I was, um, you know, I was taking classes in various subjects and I was very interested in astronomy back then. Mm -hmm. So I went to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and I took all of the astronomy and astrophysics classes that I could. Uh, but at the same time, I was more interested in philosophy and religious studies. But uh, to make some extra money on the side, I was helping to TA the astronomy labs mm -hmm. for the astronomy courses at Brown. So in the evenings during the school year, I you know, was on top of the physics building uh, at Brown, um, teaching other students how to use telescopes and, and do observational astronomy. At the same time as I was taking classes in you know, philosophy and religious studies. And when I was a senior at Brown, I was interested in writing a senior thesis. And it was actually my roommate at the time who first introduced me uh, to the discipline of history of science. I, I think her sister-in-law was a historian of science. And, and she said, Jackie, uh, maybe you should consider combining your interests in astronomy and philosophy and religion. And my favorite uh, class at the time was a course in ancient Greek religion. Mm -hmm. So I went to that professor and I said, you know, I'm interested in writing a senior thesis on astronomy and ancient Greek religion. Would you be interested in supervising that? And she, and she was interested in that. Um, and at the time, Brown University had a department for the history of mathematics. Mm -hmm. It was founded in the early 20th century and some of the great figures um, from my field, especially the the history of ancient Greek mathematics and other mathematics in antiquity, they had been at that department. So um, my uh, senior thesis supervisor, Debbie Bodiger, suggested I, I talk to the you know last remaining member of that department, David Pingree, and I asked him. You know, if I want to go on to study, you know, history of ancient astronomy, you know, to go on and do a master's or a PhD, where should I go? Mm -hmm. And he, he said, well, there's only one place to go in North America, and that's the University of Toronto. Hmm. And that was to study with uh, the professor who was there and who became my PhD supervisor, Alexander Jones. So I really came to focus on ancient astronomy and I was always interested in how astronomy intersects um, with other types of studies or other belief practices. And 
at the beginning of my studies, I was still interested in looking at the relationship between science and religion, especially in the ancient Greek world. And that's largely because it, I mean, it's a different time, but it's also a different culture. And so the way we think about what science is, um, what religion consists in, how these different areas intersect, it, it was just different back then. Um, and I've always been interested in trying to figure out what people believe and why they believe what they believe, you know, what different context is, is shaping um, their sets of beliefs. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was studying at the University of Toronto that I was first exposed to the corpus of Ptolemy, mm-hmm. um, who have, you know, uh, studied quite a bit and whose philosophy I write about in the book. And I, I quickly became aware. So as you know, Chris, you know, Ptolemy is one of the most significant figures in the history of science. Like we would not have science as it is today if we didn't have mathematicians like Ptolemy working back then. Their work was so influential. Like for 1500 years, Ptolemy's astronomy was authoritative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I quickly came to realize that some scholars had worked on certain sciences um, or, or looked at his, you know, uh, strictly scientific contributions, especially his astronomy. But there were these lingering open questions that hadn't really been delved into. Mm-hmm. And so it became clear that Ptolemy's philosophy, more generally, not just in relationship, in relationship to his astronomy, but also the other types of sciences that he studies, that it hadn't really... Uh, been thoroughly studied and and that's what motivated the book okay and i noticed in the blurb you said um some of his what he studied or what he taught was subversive and Mm -hmm. and sort of maybe um i don't say twisted but but uh redid some of the thinking of other philosophers can you talk about that a little absolutely so a lot of what I do in the book is um, I reconstruct what Ptolemy's views were, which, which in and of itself is not easy to do because the texts we have from him are very technical, scientific, and mathematical texts. Mm-hmm. But then he inserts in there various um, philosophical claims. So these claims have to do with um you know, the major types of philosophy as we know them today, right? So metaphysics being the study of what exists epistemology being the study of uh, knowledge and how what we can have knowledge about and how we acquire knowledge and also ethics. So what does the good life look like? How do we practice the best life possible? So Ptolemy inserts statements um, on these topics throughout his texts. And actually the first chapter of his great astronomical text, the Almagest, is thoroughly philosophical. So in the book, what I'm doing is I'm reconstructing what his ideas and arguments are, but at the same time, I'm contextualizing them, right? So I'm looking at what did other philosophers at the time say on these topics? And not just philosophers who lived around the same time as Ptolemy, but also philosophers whose texts would have been taken to be authoritative at the time. Hmm. So Ptolemy lived in the second century in or around Alexandria, And at the time, there were really two prevailing philosophical systems. So we had philosophers uh, who were Platonists, so they were responding to the texts of Plato. And we had philosophers who were participating in the Aristotelian commentary tradition. So they were 
writing commentaries on the texts of Aristotle. Mm -hmm. So at the time, we really have these two authorities in philosophy, right? Plato mm -hmm. and Aristotle. And philosophers were acquiring um, ideas from either one. They would mix and match, mm -hmm. um, try to elucidate the ideas of these authorities while um, putting their own stamp on the material as well. So when I talk about Ptolemy's philosophy being subversive, the idea there is that he's appropriating these ideas from uh, these philosophical authorities and um, contemporary philosophers, but then uh, he kind of turns them against those very philosophers, mm -hmm. right? So he does this by, you know, appropriating various concepts and definitions, but then the ultimate claim that he puts forward goes against what those philosophers were trying to argue in the first place. Hmm. So um, Ptolemy really does this in, in two important ways. So one way in which he does this is he's talking about what can we actually have knowledge about. And so when we talk about knowledge in ancient Greek philosophy, we're talking about what we can be absolutely certain of, mm -hmm. right, as opposed to just guessing about. So Ptolemy is, is um, responding to both Plato and Aristotle, but for Aristotle especially, um, he claimed that we can have knowledge in all of the types of um, theoretical inquiry. So the main categories there are physics, mathematics, and theology, okay. right? So we can have knowledge about all of these types of things. For Ptolemy, he is arguing that the only thing we can have knowledge about are mathematical objects. So it's only the mathematical sciences that yield knowledge. And what's especially interesting about that is, you know, Ptolemy is a mathematician, he's studying mathematical sciences. The philosophers who he was reacting against, they principally were studying these other types um, of inquiry, physics or theology. So what he's doing is he's claiming that philosophers can't have knowledge about any of the things that they're studying, hmm. right? All they can do is guess at um, the nature of their subject matter, and he criticizes them and says that they can't agree on anything. Hmm. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's a claim that we might put forward uh, towards philosophers today, right? I mean, <laughs> they're in perpetual disagreement. They're not agreeing on anything. Hmm. Um, and Ptolemy is saying, but we can um, have knowledge in mathematics and the mathematical sciences. So on the one hand, he's saying, if you want to know anything, you have to study math. And the other area he talks about, and this is like the special focus of the book, is ethics, right? So um, he's arguing that if you want to live a good life, the best life possible, the only way to achieve that, again, is by studying mathematics. I'm speaking with Jacqueline Feek, author of Ptolemy's Philosophy, you can find more information about her work on her professor webpage at University of Waterloo. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. Um, maybe this question is outside of the scope of your study, but 
or maybe it's right in it. So how did, considering he, he, um, created the ability to, to use mathematics to have such success in studying space, Mm -hmm. did his way of thinking is, is his way of thinking the reason there, he had so much success in that endeavor, you know, or could others maybe have created this, uh, you know, strong processes as well, or I'm just trying to figure out how much that helped him um, achieve what he did. I would say it must have motivated him. Mm -hmm. So if we look at Ptolemy's entire corpus, we have quite a bit, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, I argue in the book that one of his texts in particular we can place at the very beginning of his intellectual career, you might say. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a short text that has no mathematical content whatsoever. So, um, historians over the past few decades, you know, have argued against or for the authenticity of that text, you know, whether it was or was not by Ptolemy. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's pretty well established now that it is by him, but there is this question, well, why would he write something that has no mathematics in it? Um, and I argue that it, it just took him a little bit of time to formulate this idea that mathematics is necessary. Um, for, for knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and then once he uh, formulates that idea, it really drives him forward. Mm -hmm. So he studied and wrote texts on a number of mathematical sciences. And then even when he's studying more physical phenomena, what we call, might call the physical sciences, even then, those studies are framed by mathematics. Because remember that Ptolemy says that theology and physics are conjectural. We can't have knowledge of those types of things. Mm -hmm. But he does say that mathematics contributes to physics. And so what we see him doing is that if, if he wants to understand the physical nature of something, the way to do that is to first study the mathematical properties of something, and then that can give you insight to what's going on physically there. So very basically, um, he'll talk about, for instance, if you look at uh, the directionality in which something moves in the natural world, mm -hmm. right, up or down or circularly, looking at the motion of it, which, and for Ptolemy studying motion, um, uh, that's doing mathematics, that will tell you about the physical nature of it, right? Is it a corruptible substance? Is it heavy? Is it light? Those sorts of things. So even when he's doing physics, it's still framed by mathematics. And his absolute dedication to mathematics, it, I mean, it, it's quite impressive. I mean, he wrote a, a massive amount. And I would think that it would have been inspired by these sorts of philosophical ideas that he formulated. So how much did he apply so as far as the field of mathematics how much did he apply just apply what was already sort of um what existed as far as the study of mathematics and how much did he um add to or create new types of applications of mathematics right so um Ptolemy was working at at this time in the second century where a lot of intellectual output was done by systematizing what had come before mm -hmm. right so he was definitely building on the work of predecessors. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that Ptolemy will often point to one predecessor in particular as having done an especially good job, right? Uh, so in the case of his astronomy, he points to Hipparchus, mm -hmm. who lived centuries before him, and really praises him as a lover of truth, 
um, and you know someone who who contributed exceedingly well to astronomy. And then Ptolemy is trying to systematize what came before. Um, he uses observation reports that uh, you know go back to Mesopotamia, for instance. Um, but he's also contributing. So he himself made observations. We have um, observation reports from him in his text, The Almagest. And he's also trying to improve on what came before as well. Um, so very famously, uh, Ptolemy's astronomical models were eccentric um, and epicyclic. I'm not sure um, uh, how aware the listeners will be of, of these models, but the idea there is that the heavens consist of spheres. Mm -hmm. These spheres are made up of ether, a very rarefied substance, which naturally moves circularly around the Earth. Okay. So there's this idea that movement in the heavens is regular and circular, but then we observe certain anomalies, right? Like the idea was that the sun revolves around the earth, but the seasons aren't of equal length, right? So how, how can it be that a celestial object like the sun moves uniformly through the heavens, but at the same time, for instance, the seasons are unequal? Mm -hmm. And one way to explain that is to displace the center of the sun's orbit from the center of the Earth. And that's when you have an eccentric model, right, mm -hmm. where the center is out, moved out at a distance. Mm -hmm. Also, what's called the epicyclic model, where you have a large circle whose center, you know, is the Earth, mm -hmm. and you have a smaller circle um, whose center is placed on the larger one. So you have a small circle on the bigger one. Mm -hmm. And then those motions combine to create the appearance of irregularity in the heavens. So the eccentric and epicyclic models um, had been devised well before Ptolemy. And he appropriates them, and then he introduces a, a new device called the equant, uh, which is another point, um, which is meant to further account for the... Um, apparently irregular motion of celestial bodies. So mm -hmm. the whole idea behind ancient Greek astronomy is to maintain that the motion in the heavens uh, is regular, but appears to us to be irregular. Right. And then mathematical, specifically geometrical models are devised to account for the irregular appearances. And so Ptolemy definitely made contributions there, but it's all within this larger context and tradition that he was living within. Mm -hmm. What did he have any, and I'm going to ask about technology and obviously there's longer timelines as far as new technology in this period, but was he applying using any, anything new technologically in his studies than, than predecessors had? That I'm not sure of. Uh, he used a number of instruments uh, instruments, sighting instruments. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not sure whether and to what degree he modified instruments that came before him. Mm -hmm. And partly it's difficult to answer that question because of how little evidence we have from that time. So mm -hmm. one of maybe the most exciting things studied in the history of ancient mathematics is a device called the Antikythera mechanism. Mm -hmm. Now, this mechanism um, is a geared mechanism, and it consists in a number of gears. And 
together, those gears um, would uh, create a display that would show and demonstrate various cycles, like eclipse cycles and and things like that. Hmm. Um, and this was discovered on a shipwreck, um, I believe in the early 20th century it was discovered, but don't quote me on that because I'm not checking. Hmm. And it was brought to a museum and it cracked open and they were like, they were astonished because no one had believed that that sort of technology had existed before the medieval period. And there it was on this Roman shipwreck. So the, the problem is that a lot of these uh, bronze instruments were melted down and turned into something else. And so we have very little evidence of what actually existed back then. And it's in cases like this where there was a shipwreck that we actually have, you know, instruments preserved and can say with more confidence what instruments uh, were available to mathematicians uh, living back then. Mm -hmm. Did his studies in any way cross him up with religious um, thinkers or religious authorities? Um, or was he pretty much part of the mainstream in that respect? So we know very little about Ptolemy the man. Okay. So all we know about him is what he tells us, which is very little, right? We know approximately when and where he lived. Mm -hmm. We do know that he dedicated an inscription at a temple in Canopus in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And this inscription is mostly a list of numbers that represent his astronomy the parameters of his astronomical models. Mm -hmm. And so he is taking, you know, the product of his scientific endeavors as something to be dedicated to a God. Mm -hmm. And so given this evidence, it, it seems that we can take him to be fairly traditional in a religious sense. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, we have to distinguish religion from theology. So theology is the strictly philosophical study of divine things. Mm -hmm. And what that looks like is very different in the ancient Greek world from what it looks like to have one's regular religious practice. Mm. Um, so whether that means going to temple, dedicating various things to the gods, um, just as part of one's daily life, you know, engaging in religious celebrations. There's no reason to think that he would have been unorthodox in any of those ways. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, he can still pursue these very technical scientific endeavors. And I think it's important that when we think about these um, problems of science and religion, we remember, first of all, that what that relationship looks like is different in every culture and we don't have to assume that religion and science are in conflict, right? So when we look at the history of science, you know, one of the classic cases is what happened um, with Galileo and his condemnation, given his support of the Copernican theory, right? Mm -hmm. And given those sorts of cases, we can often think, well, religion and science are at odds, uh, but they're not necessarily, and they, they weren't at all times. And, and even today, people can be, you know, very religious um, in their beliefs and practices, and at the same time, be a scientist or a ma mathematician or something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier that um, some of his work 
you know, stood the test of time for 1500 years. Um, what, what parts of his work are you referring to and, and why did it have this strength? Can you, can you speak to that? Sure. So I was especially referring to Ptolemy's astronomy. Mm-hmm. So his most famous text, uh, we refer to it uh, as the Almagest, mainly because of that's how um, it was referred to in the Islamic tradition. But for Ptolemy, it was the mathematical composition. Okay. Right. And I mentioned a little bit before about how in the second century in which he was living, a lot of um, intellectual work that was done was in synthesizing material that came before and improving on it. So Ptolemy, with this text, I mean, it's very impressive. He has mathematical models for what were called the fixed stars um, and uh, the, as well as the wandering stars, which, you know, we call planets, right? So he has mathematical models to explain all, all of those movements. Um, but his texts are also predictive. You can use the tables in order to determine where any celestial body would be located on any date, mm-hmm. right? So what we have in the case of Ptolemy's Almagest is um, a text that has very impressive and detailed mathematical models but also one that can be used in astrology in order to predict, again, the locations of uh, the planets um, and stars on on any day. Mm -hmm. So what happens is his models are so good, right, that for mathematicians for centuries and, you know, millennia afterward, they were looking uh, to his text as the gold standard. So it was used um, not just we might say for the highest level of astronomical study, but also a bit as a school text, right? Mm -hmm. So when um, philosophers and mathematicians in late antiquity were studying the mathematical sciences, they, they um, would look as well to the Alma just, Mm -hmm. and also astrologers could use the tables um, when they were doing their own work. Hmm. Part of the reason I ask this is because I did another interview with um, a gentleman who for decades did, um, spaceflight navigation, you know, using mathematics to, um, mm-hmm. um, use, uh, to determine how to fly these unmanned spacecraft. And, and he made a comment that surprised me. He said, you know, all the, all the really hard work, you know, was done by people I admire back in like, I think he said like to the 1600s or I'm kind of paraphrasing him. And mm-hmm. I was kind of shocked that, you know, a modern, you know, scientist or, you know, engineer would, would praise, people that far back um and then talk talking about ptolemy which i assume their work built on what he did Mm -hmm. um, it seems you know modern modern spacecraft technology and processes are so much more connected to the past uh the 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 path is shorter than i thought i guess is my point um so that's part of the reason i asked the question to see what you know why this stood the test of time this work Absolutely. I mean, it. I was even surprised to figure out how short that path is. So I've worked at a number of universities for three years. I was a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University, mm-hmm. and I brought my students to the rare book library in order to show them, you know, some texts from the early modern period. Mm-hmm. And 
one text we looked at was, um, a, I believe it was a first edition of Copernicus's On the Revolutions, right? So published in 1543. So mm-hmm. probably... Um, this person you were talking to was referring in part to Copernicus. Mm -hmm. So Copernicus is famous, of course, because he um, was the one who, who really um, established the hypothesis that the earth is not at the center of the cosmos, but the sun is. Mm -hmm. And when Copernicus is doing this, he's responding specifically to Ptolemy's astronomy, even though, um, Copernicus was publishing, he published his text in 1543, and Ptolemy was living way back in the second century. Mm-hmm. And and really that's because Ptolemy's um, text became authoritative. Um, even in the Islamic tradition, when they were doing astronomy, they were trying to improve on Ptolemy specifically. Mm-hmm. And so when I, you know, uh, was looking at this first edition of Copernicus's text, what was interesting to me is I flipped towards the back and at the end of it was included the first book of Ptolemy's Almagest. Mm-hmm. So whoever had bound that book thought that Ptolemy's text um, should be read side by side with mm-hmm. Copernicus. Yeah, that's cool stuff. Um, can you talk about in your, again, in the book blurb, it, it mentions harmonics. Um, can you touch on that a little bit? Because I find that to be a very interesting uh, oh, great. subject. Yeah. Definitely. So, of course, I was motivated to study Ptolemy because of my own interest in astronomy. But Ptolemy worked on a number of sciences. Mm-hmm. One of maybe the most significant sciences that he worked on in terms of his philosophical system is harmonics. Mm-hmm. So, harmonics for Ptolemy is the study of the mathematical ratios that describe the relations among musical pitches. Mm-hmm. So if any of the listeners have, have studied music theory at all, I mean, they were doing something similar to what Ptolemy was doing. So we can talk about um, if you want to play an octave, you can look at the ratios and the lengths of the strings that produce that octave, and the ratio is two to one, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was reconstructing um, or you know, endeavoring to discover and also influenced by his predecessors, of course. But what are what are the ratios that describe um, the relations between pitches that we think of um, as harmonic, right? So musical notes. What ratios actually under, underlie those relations? So for Ptolemy, harmonics is a mathematical study, mm-hmm. right? It's it's looking at arithmetic ratios and seeing which ratios actually exist and explain these phenomena, what we hear when we listen to music. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I really like harmonics as a counterpoint to astronomy because Ptolemy actually thought of them that way. He talks about harmonics and astronomy as being cousin sciences, as if they're related in, in some way. Mm. And it has to do with, um, I mean, just the idea that harmonics and astronomy are related in some way, that goes back centuries before Ptolemy. Pythagorean philosophers referred to them as sister sciences. Hmm. And Ptolemy actually explains this, and, and it has to do with w- which of our five senses we use when we study astronomy versus harmonics. Hmm. So, because harmonics is the study of musical pitches, the only one of our senses we use specifically to study that is the sense of hearing. Mm-hmm. 
So musical pitches are things that we can only hear, right? We can't um, see them or smell them or taste them. Mm -hmm. And astronomy, because it's the study of the movements of celestial bodies, and back then you couldn't fly up into space, the only way um, that we could perceive them was through the sense of sight, Mm. right? So they're analogous in this way. And I think it's interesting to take harmonics as the counterpoint to astronomy because we can look at the various claims, philosophical claims that Ptolemy makes with regard to each. Mm -hmm. And we can ask things like, okay, um, does he um, continue to claim that we can have knowledge in harmonics and knowledge in astronomy? And what about when it comes to ethics? If I want to live a good life, if I want to be a virtuous person, um, should I study astronomy? Should I study harmonics or both? And, And the answer is both. I'm speaking with Jacqueline Feek, author of Ptolemy's Philosophy. You can find more information about her work on her professor webpage at University of Waterloo. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. Does his study of harmonics, does it also, and and maybe I'm just totally off base here, but doesn't that also affect the study of, um, say, radio waves and, and um, using communication networks and also material science, you know, the harmonics of materials as they vibrate, you know, and um, when they coincide, they can uh, accentuate each other or cancel and that sort of thing. Does that, is there a flow between harmonics and that study? There is. I mean, Ptolemy, he um, defines sound as air that has been struck, mm-hmm. right? So there, there is a physical explanation underlying what sound and in particular musical pitches are Mm -hmm. but for ptolemy he mainly approaches this from the mathematical end and so while he allows that musical pitches are things that have a physical aspect to them when he's studying them he is focusing principally on those arithmetic ratios so studying them mathematically Mm -hmm. and in a way that i find very interesting he's we doing a sort of controlled observation we i wouldn't go so far as to say that he was doing experiments Mm -hmm. but he was trying to control for factors so that he could make the most precise observations possible Mm -hmm. and that has to do with his choice of which musical instruments he would use so he used stringed instruments because you can precisely measure lengths along a string. Mm-hmm. And in that way, control for um, other problems you might have with other instruments. And I, I like to think that Ptolemy's harmonics especially influenced the study of physics millennia later mm-hmm. because he's doing these controlled observations. How often did he start out with a thesis or hypothesis and test it versus simply just observing and then coming to some kind of idea based on what he observed? 
It's very difficult to answer that question because we don't have um, any of his rough work, mm. right? All we have are these finished treatises in which he's demonstrating the truth of the claims that he's aiming to prove. Mm -hmm. And that has to do a lot with what sort of media they had um, to write and record things. So, I mean, Ptolemy's texts were on papyrus scrolls. Mm -hmm. And those things disintegrate over time, even in Egypt where it's very dry. So if it's not buried in a garbage heap, it's going to disintegrate. And so it has it has to be recopied. And um, so for centuries, his texts were taken to be significant enough that they were copied over and over and over again by scribes. Mm -hmm. And so if something were going to be maintained, right, it would it would most likely be a finished product. And so it's very difficult to say what his um, process of discovery would have been like. Mm. He does allude in the Almagest um, to a, a sort of trial and error process that he used with some aspects of his astronomical models. And it's almost as if he's a bit embarrassed by it, that it didn't just flow from, you know, a, a clear cut deductive method, that he did have to do some trial and error um, to work it out. But in terms of, you know, what that really looked like um, in detail, we can't say simply because, you know, he, di he didn't reveal that to us. Okay. And maybe you don't have an answer for this question, but do you know if <laughs> did, he, did he ever teach students or was he just as far as you can tell? What I love is that you're you're asking me questions and I keep I keep saying, well, these are the constraints that make it very difficult to answer <laughs> that. Right. Um so Ptolemy, he dedicates some of his texts to someone we have no idea who he was, Cirrus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have we just have absolutely no way of knowing who that was, right? Was it a teacher of his? Was it a student of his? Was it a friend of his? We have no idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's also a matter of he was living specifically in the second century. And if we were looking later, like at the fourth century and mathematicians then we know more about that context. And so we can say, for instance, that Theon of Alexandria, who was a commentator on Ptolemy, that he had students, mm -hmm. including his daughter Hypatia. Um, but for Ptolemy, we know less about that particular century, and we know even less about Ptolemy's life. And so we can't say for certain whether he had students. I, I would suspect that he did. Um, but we can't say for certain either way. Do we know, do we have any information how scholars in this period supported themselves? Did they have patrons or, you know, were they part of some kind of, you know, school, you know, um, well, well, I'll let you answer that. Yeah, it's a great question. And that varied throughout antiquity, whether someone would have a patron, um, or would simply be independently wealthy. Most of these guys were probably independently wealthy. And, and Ptolemy does t use um, a specific word, which I think is very enlightening. So in the first chapter of the Almagest, he's making an argument for why one should spend one, one's time studying mathematics and in particular the mathematical science of astronomy. And when he's doing this, he's talking about how one should spend one's leisure time. And what that indicates is that 
he regards intellectual activity as something to be done in what we might say is one's downtime. So when he's not managing his estate or, hmm. you know, the other aspects of life, managing his household, when he has leisure, he's engaging in these very technical mathematical studies. So I, I would say that he was probably independently wealthy and had various responsibilities that came along with that. And being wealthy is what allowed him then to spend so much of his time on the sciences. Mm -hmm. So all we have is copies of his work. There's no, nothing original out there. It's all, like you say, it's all um, probably disintegrated. Yeah, the, the originals are long gone. Yeah. Um, but what we have are medieval manuscripts mm -hmm. that uh, contain his texts, right? So... Mm -hmm. When you have um, these copies, you know, from so much later, sometimes um, there are scribal errors and, and things like that. Um, and, and so there are editors uh, who spend their scholarship trying to devise, you know, you know, the best edition of a text. Mm -hmm. And so when when we're studying astronomy from so long ago there there are always things we can't absolutely answer and it's always constrained by what we have right mm -hmm. no doubt the text of the almagest that we have now is not word for word what ptolemy wrote mm -hmm. right there would have been some changes made over those centuries but this this is the best we can have and so that that's what we study so apart from his works what other um philosophers did you study and, and what other resources did he use right so i'm very interested in studying the philosophical systems of ancient greek mathematicians right mm -hmm. so with ptolemy I, I kind of found this niche where you know ancient philosophy you know has been studied since antiquity right mm -hmm. yeah. um <laughs> but given how academic disciplines are parsed now the philosophical claims of mathematicians have kind of fallen through the cracks, right? Because you need someone who's trained in the history of mathematics, but is also interested uh, and, and trained in philosophy. And I just found there's a lot of work to be done there. So I've been focusing quite a bit on, on these early centuries of the common era. So of, of course, Ptolemy, but two other mathematicians I've studied on are Fiona of Alexandria, who I mentioned earlier. So he was living in the fourth century and he was a commentator on Ptolemy. So I talked about earlier how philosophers who lived in Ptolemy's time took the texts of Plato and Aristotle to be authoritative. Well, what's interesting with Theon is that he took Ptolemy's Almagest to be authoritative. It was something um, to be commented on in great detail. And he comments not only on the mathematics, but also on some of Ptolemy's philosophical claims. Um, and it seems that uh, Theon really held Ptolemy to be a paradigm um, when it comes to not only astronomical study, but also what a good life consists in. So he was, he was modeling himself off of Ptolemy. Mm -hmm. And um, I've also written a bit on Hero of Alexandria. He lived in the first century, uh, so one century before Ptolemy. Mm -hmm. And he was known 
for his study of types of practical mathematics and especially mechanics. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I wrote an article that came out a few years ago, and I was looking specifically at the type of rhetoric Hero uses um, and how Ptolemy uses that same rhetoric. So this is interesting because they were working in entirely distinct types of mathematics, right? There would be no reason to think that Ptolemy would have studied Hero's texts. Hmm. And yet they both make and use the same language when they're doing this. They make the same very specific claim that geometrical demonstration or proof is indisputable. And when they put forward this claim, they use the exact same argument structure. Hmm. Right. So there seems to be some sort of rhetorical tradition that was occurring at the time among mathematicians where they were using these arguments to bolster the value of their own studies, right? To, to, to explain why one shouldn't be studying something that was studied more often, which was, you know, philosophy traditionally construed and should be spending one's life studying mathematics. So considering that their works have have reached us through, in a sense, a filter, you know, the medieval mm-hmm. or some filter, is it at all possible that something like this might be because of the an intervening filter, or is it pretty much there were enough different copies that you could say that's not the case? So it has to do text to text. So for some of Ptolemy's texts, we will have multiple, multiple medieval manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Um, some of his texts are gone. They're completely lost to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know they exist because late antique philosophers would refer to them. So they would give the title of the book. They would um, briefly address what it was about, but the text itself is gone. Mm-hmm. And then other of Ptolemy's texts exist only in... Arabic translation. Hmm. And so we don't know what the original Greek consisted in, especially because some of these Arabic translations clearly are not very good translations. Hmm. Right. So then you have this additional interpretive problem of figuring out, well, what did that text likely say, not only given the translation we have, but how it relates to the text we do have from Ptolemy in Greek. Um, so, yeah, there there are specific challenges to studying these old texts, but I find it, like, I love problem solving, and so I find it really enjoyable. And this might be an almost impossible question to answer, but do we have any sense of, like, what percentage of, you know, the work of mathematical works from antiquity have, have reached us? You know, was it just a small number who did this and we have a good amount? Or do you think there were, you know, hundreds or, or thousands that are just lost to history? That's a great question. So, so first of all, the, the number of texts we have is just a small fraction of what would have existed. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, because of the practicality of how these texts having to be um, copied over and over again. But mm-hmm. it also has to do with this idea of authoritative texts. So I mentioned how Ptolemy's Almagest is a a compendium. It's synthesizing a lot of what came before it, as well as contributing new aspects to astronomy as well. But what that meant is that the texts that came before Ptolemy's Almagest were deemed obsolete. Hmm. And so those just weren't recopied, Hmm. right? Because 
the, the scribe, you know, was leaving to posterity what was taken to be the most authoritative text right. as opposed to all the, all of those things that came before. Um, it's also important to keep in mind that there were actually very few mathematicians studying high level mathematics in antiquity. I, I think when we tend to think about what the past would have been like, we tend to import certain things, right? So there are tons of mathematicians um, and, and scientists today. Mm-hmm. I don't even, I mean, I have no idea the absolute number, but, you know, tons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the ancient Mediterranean, at most, at any one time, there would have been a few dozen individuals studying high-level mathematics. Mm-hmm. So throughout the entire Mediterranean, so very, very few people. Um, they might have been concentrated in certain areas, like Alexandria, especially where Ptolemy lived, mm-hmm. um, but there were very few of them. Um and maybe that's also why we have this short path like you were talking about between the 16th century and antiquity. Mm-hmm. Because you, if you have fewer individuals working on this, they're, they're responding um, to people who came, you know, which people came before them, right? Mm-hmm. And some of them from, from centuries before. And those texts had to be transmitted. They had to be um, distributed amongst other people uh, working in those areas. Mm-hmm. So researching this this work, what did you find that most surprised you? One thing I was very surprised by was how consistent Ptolemy's philosophy is across his corpus. Mm-hmm. You might think that he changed his mind a lot, right? As he, I mean, he worked for decades mm-hmm. studying various sciences, um, not just astronomy and harmonics, but you know, geography as well. Um, probably optics. Uh, we're not sure if his optical text is his or not, um, but we scholars tend to think that Ptolemy composed the optics. Um, and you would think, well, if he's working over decades, wouldn't he um, change change his mind quite a bit about what he thinks about these things? Um, and he, he does on small matters, but when it comes to the big things about what we can have knowledge of and how he should dedicate his time specifically to mathematics, he's entirely consistent. Mm-hmm. That's very impressive to me, right? So he, he formulated this idea that one should dedicate one's life to mathematics, and he, he does just that for decades. Does the work he did, did it have, do you have an idea of how much practical application it had at the time, or did it just seem like it would be cool to know this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, Probably both. Um, So his tables, his astronomical tables were used in astrology. And Mm. we tend to look down on astrology today. I mean, for Ptolemy, astrology was a physical science, right? Mm. It was the study of the effects that the movements of the stars and planets have on our souls and on our bodies, Mm. right? Um, So his astrological text is very theoretical, but I mean, there were people you know, throughout um, in antiquity who were using astronomical tables to cast horoscopes. Mm-hmm. And, and and people wanted to know what their futures would hold, and, and that could be determined, or at least guessed at well, mm-hmm. through astrology. So, so Ptolemy's astronomy, like, had, like, a very real practical application mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just makes me wonder how often... And this is a much broader question. How often um, scientific research 
how far ahead of the technology that could have used that knowledge was, um, you know, cause you could come up with something and then immediately afterwards an engineer would say, Hey, that, that would means I can create this. Whereas, you know, some of what he, he studied seems like it took a while for the technology to catch up and, and do great things with. Yeah. I think antiquity gets a bad rap when it comes to technology. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some historians of science who are doing great work looking at how, um, you know, the building of instruments studied theoretical work and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned earlier that there are these two fundamental types of astronomical hypotheses in ancient Greek astronomy. One is called the eccentric model and the other is the epicyclic. Mm-hmm. And the epicyclic is a small circle whose center is moving around a big circle. Well, what does that sound like or look like? It looks like a gear system. Mm-hmm. Right, so so there was a lot of interchange, probably at, at work, um, when it comes to theoretical study of the sciences and, and actual um, work in mechanics and instrument building. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's tough because you know they they didn't have telescopes back then, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know that that would take. Um, you know, centuries and, and, and until, you know, it wasn't until Galileo pointed a, a telescope at the heavens that we finally have, you know, more, even more precise observations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I think of it, I, you know, I, their work in the sciences was so advanced, um, but there had to be some sort of motivation mm-hmm. uh, to, to do and make the sorts of applications I think you're referring to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So considering so much information that you don't have, mm-hmm. was there st- is there still a, a question that you would love to get an answer to? Like so, some part of this research that you really is your puzzle that you'd really love to solve? Oh, that's I think I've just accepted wholeheartedly that I can't know everything. Mm-hmm. Right. And then um, that's, that's the framework for my own work. Right. So when we're doing history, we can never absolutely prove anything. Right. We're, we're trying to make the most convincing case given the material. I, I guess I, I kind of wish I could talk to Ptolemy's ghost and ask him if I was right, but uh, I'm not sure I want the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish more people understood that about history because so often you have people say, well, this is what happened and that's what happened. And, whatever period, or even even in modern history, people feel like they have the answer for what happened. And it's like, no, I, I, I don't agree, but... Yeah, it's, we have to look at the evidence and determine based on the evidence what the most um, convin- convincing cases of what actually happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think is the importance of the history of science for people? You know, what what part does it play in the future, say, you know, in what we're doing now in space exploration and, and going forward? I I mean, I think, I think the history of science is hugely important. I mean, if we really want to understand why we're doing what we're doing now and how we got where we are, we should look to the past, right? Because a, a lot of a lot of that started with what they were doing, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, 
One of the most basic questions I'm addressing um, in the book is pretty much why did Ptolemy study mathematics and the mathematical sciences, including astronomy? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm arguing that it's because of what he conceived the good life to to be, right? Mm-hmm. The virtuous life. Um, what was the best life possible? Mm-hmm. And for him, uh, the best life is a life where one tries to be as much like the divine, as much like the gods as possible. Hmm. And one achieves that through the study of astronomy as well as harmonics. Um, and and I think we can ask similar questions today, right? So when uh, scientists, when mathematicians are deciding that they want to spend their time in these pursuits, what's motivating them? Mm-hmm. And some mathematicians have actually reached out to me after reading my book um, and and said that they uh, they saw themselves in Ptolemy, mm-hmm. right? That you know that they were motivated in similar ways, and uh, that that they were uh, trying to live the best life, to study the best material, to study something where they can have knowledge, um, mm. just like Ptolemy, so long ago. So it's one thing that struck me is you know talking about Ptolemy looking out to the heavens for the best, you know, searching for the knowledge of the best life, and then. Um, another author had, had interviewed people as to why, why did they want to go out into space? You know, and some of the answers are, you know, to make money because it's out there. Um, you know, because that's where humanity can go to break free of, of the confines of the earth and, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Express themselves better to, to save humanity. Um, so it's kind of interesting to think about people here, you know, on earth looking out into space, looking mm-hmm. for, you know, sort of the good life, the better life, the best life that they can achieve, you know, out there. I totally see that. Right. It's this idea of fulfilling one's potential. Mm-hmm. Right. So Ptolemy couldn't travel to space, mm-hmm. but he could study it through precise observations mm-hmm. and um, discover the mathematical models that explained what he observed in the heavens mm-hmm. and then find inspiration in those models and in the features of those models for himself. So in the Almagest, he talks about certain properties of the movements of celestial bodies, and these are constancy, good order, commensurability, and calm. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that one should model one's self after celest- the movements, excuse me, the movements of celestial bodies, mm-hmm. so that one to himself becomes constant, well-ordered, commensurable, and calm. Right. So the the heavens act as an exemplar. For human beings mm-hmm. and by modeling ourselves after the heavens we can become our best selves and and so what you're describing sounds a bit like that right so mm-hmm. how can we today be our best selves what what would that look like what would that entail and it sounds like for um some of these astronauts that means going where other people have not been mm-hmm. right and achieving something great mm-hmm yeah, it's a weird confluence, or maybe I shouldn't say weird, a confluence of spirituality and science, scientific mind, um, brought together. So, 
Yeah, I don't think of it as weird. I I see them as, you know, inextricable, mm-hmm. right? Like where our philosophical motivations are in, inspiring us um, in many aspects of our lives. So so Ptolemy talks about keeping um, these theories when it comes to the movements of the heavens, keeping them in mind all of the time, even when is engaged in the ordinary affairs of life. So you can think about, well, what does that mean? Well, maybe when I go to the supermarket, I should think about being well-ordered and calm, mm-hmm. right? Um, maybe when I'm brushing brushing my teeth, I'm thinking about um, being my best self possible, right? So it's supposed to inspire every aspect of your life. Wow, I can just keep going thinking about this. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, like, me- you know, meditation through through celestial observation is... That's an interesting concept, but I guess that's astrology yeah. in a sense, right? I guess astro- people who are into astrology kind of see that in a sense. Yeah, I mean, the word meditation is interesting because for Ptolemy, um, astronomy, mathematics, these are contemplative sciences, right? When one contemplates, when one studies them. Mm-hmm. So maybe not meditation is its practice today, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, I know I've only done a little bit of meditation, right? But you're focusing on your breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for, for Ptolemy, this is protracted uh, study of mathematics. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Are you on the web at all? Do you have a, a web page or anything where people can follow your, your thoughts and works? I have a web page um, at the University of Waterloo. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, an associate professor in the philosophy department there. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can find some information about me there. And there's a link from there to my academia.edu page, mm-hmm. um, where pretty much I just have my CV. So if you'd like to see a list of my publications, mm-hmm. I have links there. Um, so you can access them. I should probably also say, if I didn't say earlier, my book just came out in paperback a couple months ago. Okay. Uh, and so it's it's very affordable um, if anyone is interested in purchasing it. Right. Okay. Um, and I'll just so you're I'll spell your name for listeners. Um, Jacqueline is J A C Q U E I U E L I N E, and then Feek is F E K E. Yes, that's right. So um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? I just wanted to thank you for inviting me to your podcast. I've never been on a podcast before. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter to keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.